Thanks for downloading this episode of Historic Racing News. It's for personal use only and must not be broadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching for Historic Racing News wherever they get their podcasts. Racing News Radio Show. Here is your host, Paul Tarsi. Welcome to the show. On our packed program tonight, we have the opportunity to talk about the world of auctions and all sorts of other stuff during the course of the next couple of hours. I'm joined by Jim Roller. Joe Bradley and How Paul Jones. <laughs> and uh, we'll be putting the world to rights for the next couple of hours on all sorts of subjects. My name is Paul Tarsi, and I actually spent a long weekend in Paris at the beginning of the month to visit Retromobile. And I've a small report just to tell you a bit about what is probably the most prestigious of car shows. We'll take a look at the upcoming race retro and we'll tell you about our first appearance of the historic racing news team on the live stage at this great event but first paul Jones. is the world ready for that is the world <laughs> no, really Jim. ready for that brace yourself no, world yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> now i'm expecting a i'm expecting a, a posse of agents at the door wanting to sign us up for for a tv show but uh, Maybe I should. Yeah, probably agents of the law saying, "Yes, you yeah, all have taste. been banned." Bad taste <laughs> <Yes>. agents. <laughs> um, Sorry, I interrupt as I always yeah. do. The rude <laughs> we know what happened to the last person who did that. Um, yeah, well, yeah, that's true. <laughs> first, Paul Jard, you've uh, been taking a look at some of the uh, the news and views that have been happening. Welcome. Thank you very much. Yep. And uh, so after what seems a very long winter's break, we are starting to see things ramp up. You mentioned Race Retro, 23rd to the 25th of February, Stonely Park, just south of Coventry. We'll be there. We hope you are too. Same weekend. Sorry, no, I do apologise. Same Next weekend after that, we've got the Amelia Island Concourse d'Elegance over in Amelia Island in February, 29th of Fe- in Florida, sorry, 29th of February to the 3rd of March. And uh, we're then really just starting to get see some racing coming as we sneak into march in uh, the svra have their thunderhill speed tour at thunderhill raceway park isn't that a great name for a circuit at willows in california we've got the philip island car classic at philip island in victorian australia um hsr kick off their season with their savoring spring fling 8th of march to 10th of march and uh, in, if you like it in the woods rally north wales british historic rally championship is the 16th of march and uh, of course then 
23rd of March to the 24th of March, we have our good friends at Equip Classic Racing. They start their season. That's actually going to be the first race meeting of the season at Brands Hatch. And of course, uh, it should be worth going along to because it's you and you and I in the commentary uh, gig, I think, there, Paul. So, so they tell me. So uh, that'll be gosh. I'll start doing some uh, some polishing of, of all sorts of knowledge that I didn't know I had. Can, I'll can just I send add, you my notes. It'll be fine. Can I add an, <laughs> can I add an event? Go for it. Uh, let's not forget, we've got the inaugural Moda Miami, which is uh, yes. a new car show mm. in Florida on February 29th through March 3rd. It's the first one. It is going to be a little bit different feel, I suspect, than what we have traditionally seen at um, Amelia Island. The RM Susby's folks will be holding an auction there. They're going to be having a celebration of Shelby 101, celebration of his legacy, uh, 70 years of the gull wing, and all kinds of, uh, of, of new stuff, uh, food themes. It's going to be quite a different event. I'm going to be very interested to see what kind of reviews this gets in its uh, inaugural event. It's a very much a different kind of, of, of concourse. Thank you for that, Jim. I think that's important. And, and yes, I agree. It's uh, we've ha- we've seen so many different concours come about over the course of the last ten years or more. Uh, and maybe it's time for a refresh. Mm. We'll see. Oh, go on. I was going to say, yeah, just wandering into the area of news. We've got the Silverstone Festival towards the end of August this year, 23rd to the 25th of August. And they've announced their their race program for this year, 20 races across the weekend, mostly qualifying on the Friday. We've got some good old favourites like the the prestigious the Royal Automobile Club Tourist Trophy for the Cobras, Ferraris, Jaguars and Aston Martins from the 50s and 60s, uh, pre-war sports cars, pre-1941. That's sorry, they're judging the war by when the Americans decided to turn up. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring, uh, it's, it's going to be Alfa Romeos, Bentleys, Bugattis, etc., etc. Guilty as charged. <laughs> <laughs> so, and um, yeah, we've got the usual Formula One. So we've got the uh, Masters Racing Legends, the uh, DFE cars from 66 to 85, and uh, the HGPCA cars, the pre-66 cars, which are always very exciting. We've also got some new races this year for Formula 2 and Formula 3. These cars really seem to be suddenly becoming flavour of the month for Formula 2 and Formula 3 cars. Lots of people announcing packages and races you can go with them, and they are fantastic cars to come and see. So we've got them here. We've also got, of course, the Quick Classic Racing have got their new Formula 2 series. Um, Going on down there, there's going to be a whole host of cars racing at there we've got formula junior which again always entertaining formula junior always makes you think because formula junior was the level below formula one for many many years and uh pre-66 touring cars all those lotus cortinas going around corners waving a wheel giant killing minis against quite often some very very big v8 american ford galaxies or whatever and also most racing legends are going to be there with a historic touring car challenge so uh Ford Sierra Cosworth, BMW M3s and Rover SDIs, another group of cars that really suddenly seem to be coming back into into fashion. And we're seeing more and more championships, and more and more series trying to get those cars on the grid. And they are truly, truly spectacular. So there's going to be 20 races there across the weekend. And it's going to be, as ever, 
well worth seeing. Wow. 20? 20 races? 20 races across the wow, weekend. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. And it's the wonderful Sophie Ellis Baxter as well. I mm. did wonder if you were going to mention that. Yes, I did notice the picture <laughs> on the Facebook page. <laughs> <laughs> Never miss a chance Question. to uh, put up a picture of Sophie. Mm. Question for for the for you all: Do we think that the this rise in the Formula Two and Formula Three is partially because it is an affordable alternative to? some of, of, of what we're seeing in the prototype classes and some of the bigger uh, engine cars and that sort of stuff? Is there a affordability uh, here that allows more pe- an entry level, as, as for lack of a better term? Joe, what would there's you still, think on that? Yeah, I put that still, to Joe, really, yeah. There's still a very expensive car to run. Are they? Yeah, I mean, anything historic, um, you know, Chevron's probably stopped making – suspension bits and pieces and then and it's the little bits isn't it it's the engine mounts and the like and the the brackets that hold the alternator on and stuff like that that's the stuff that you find a struggle but there are specialist companies out there who have been creating bespoke parts for historic race cars um they are a very i mean we're, we're talking sort of 1970s 80s formula two here aren't we yeah. And they're a, they're a beautiful race car. There was a series. Oh, I mean, they were so visceral, weren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, they're loud. They're wide tired. They're grippy. They are quite pure. You know, the the very early stages of aerodynamics and understanding aerodynamics. So you've got the you know the the huge they all look different. They all look different. Yes. They were built by different manufacturers. They um, but as to where they've all um appeared from they've probably been collecting dust in backs of workshops and stuff and, and then I people suppose the, other, the other thing with that joe is that um maybe not all of them are as old as they uh purport to be uh, mm-hmm. um i haven't uh i haven't heard anything with regards to people making continuations of that category of car but there is a an element of that and plus you know you'll always get you know the way that dampers have uh, developed over the years and tire development, you know, that you are going to get a more, you are going to put a more modern damper on the car. It's not going to be a damper from 1979, is it? It's, um, it's going to be, you know, so the, the cars, are, the, I mean, it's the same as historic Formula One cars, isn't it? And, you know, the, the, the car that comes to mind is the Ram, that was mm. run by run Kenny Aitchison drove it in Grand Prix racing in the early eighties, eighty three, I think. And the car didn't have any budget. the The team didn't have any budget. And a, a friend of mine, Bob Berridge, bought that Aitchison Ram, and he was able to spend money on it, and develop it, and 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 make it better, and and make it stiffer, and make it and the car probably. It's hard to judge the car's lap times, for instance, from then and now because of tyres and dampers and stuff. But Bob put it into perspective for me. He said, you know, these cars didn't have any money spent on them. They were basically built and ran on a, on a very thin thread of funding. And it's, you know, historic Formula One cars are, are now, some of them are getting more money spent on them than they ever did in their, in their lifetime. And I think um, the other thing as well, well, Joe, is you touched on this, is the more people that bring those cars out, the more 
the infrastructure comes around those cars to be able to supply the bits, et cetera, et cetera, because there's more of a demand. It's almost like a self-fulfilling policy, a prophecy. And the more valuable the cars become. Can you remember there was a resurgence in historic Formula 3? Probably, when I think back now, it's probably 10 years ago, this. And all of a sudden, a car that was worth, I don't know, Three or four thousand. I've seen it in. I've seen it in Formula Ford. I was going to say historic Ford as well. Yeah, historic yeah. Formula Fords, where you know you you can take a ZTEC Ford worth eight grand, put a Kent engine in it, and it's worth eighteen grand. Mm. Um, <laughs> I mean, you, you're going to have to spend three to five grand to put a Kent engine in it because it's not as easy as it sounds. But you know, you immediately up the value because there's more demand, and it's demand, isn't it? It's if you've got a series, it's the old Kevin Cosner movie thing. Build it, and they will come. If you give if you give somebody a place to race, any sort of car, um, and there are and if there are plenty out there, then they will come. And I think this is what's happened with these cars. And and also, maybe Jim, to answer your question in a more simple way, can you imagine in thirty years trying to run? A current Formula One car? No, no. Or a current hypercar? Well, I now don't that, think you can because of the computers and stuff. Well, That's, well, well you can, Jim. Well, you can, but yeah. You can, because right. we're I seeing can. it in, in H- HSR where we saw right. those two DPI Cadillacs being run. Uh-huh. However, the owners of those cars are very wealthy guys. And not only were they there with those cars, but they were there with Dan Binks. And yeah. they were there pretty much with the Ganassi <laughs> engineer that was running the car in period, who come out on his weekend off and was, you know, being paid to run the car at an historic event. Um, but I suppose that's in some ways, Joe, that's the way that motorsport has evolved in that if if you go back to the 70s, walk around a Formula One paddock in the 70s, and they were changing an engine on a, on a, a gravel floor, um, and that there would have been three or four mechanics looking after a f- current let, Formula let me, One car. Let and, me tell you this little story, Paul. Let me tell you this story, little story, right? It'll have been, it was a Leighton House march, and it was, so that'll have been 88. Back of the pits at Silverstone, there's a, there's a, a the engine, I can't remember, was it, it wouldn't have been a DFE in 88, it'd yeah, been a, yeah, that, it was. that naturally aspirated thing, would it, would it, or would it have been a DFE? Anyway, it sat on the floor at the back of the garage, at the back of the garage on the tarmac, and there's a mechanic trying to um, take the clutch off the clutch plate, which was a tiny thing, and he's got his spar- he's got his ratchet on there, and he, as he turns the ratchet, the clutch turns, the engine's turning. So, <laughs> me being me, I grab a <laughs> screwdriver, a big screwdriver, out of the um, out of his toolbox, and I jump. Do anything the, to do with it? Um, I'd, no, no, no! I was a spectator. I was a spectator. Sorry, I forgot to add. I'm a spectator here, and I'm watching what he's doing with this motor. And so the, the the flywheel's turning as he's turning the ratchet. So I pick up his screwdriver and I jam the um, the um, ring gear on the flywheel against the against the block. And I and I'm like, go on, mate, give that a go. And it cracks. So he's then able to crack off the nuts to get the clutch off. Because I jammed the flywheel and stopped the engine turning. 
different times, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, try, try that at Red Bull Racing. You'd have been thrown <laughs> under the jail nowadays. Absolutely. And it was just like, and he was like, cheers, mate. Yeah, and, thanks, mate. You know, cheers, mate. What, what, what I went away with thinking was, you're not a time serve mechanic, are you, son? <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, you, you you taught that one when you were like a two week apprentice. You know, um, yeah, that's, what I thought. that's great. That is a great story, thought, as as they what, always are. What I was, thank, what, thank you, what I was going to say is maybe these cars are coming out because, and as as I was, I was kind of saying, you know, the modern cars are very complex. You've got the electronics, la di da. But those pure 1970s, 80s single-seat cars, whether they're a Formula 2 or a Formula 3 or whatever, um, they're a purer car, aren't they? You've got the you've got the suspension geometry. You've got the engine and gearbox. There's no paddle shifts. It's a mechanical shifter. It, they're, they're all simpler. They're simple to run. I, I think and, as well. I think you're right, Joe. Because what what I really like about them, and I'm going to touch on this later on, actually, because we've got a, there's a picture of the Tyrrell w- workshop that we've got on our Facebook page. But you look at a car of those era with the bodywork off, and you know what every bit does. Yeah, yes. you can work out what every bit does, and I love that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's that's very true. Um, and I suppose, as with all these things, it depends where you stand. Because completely agree, and and all of us have that kind of history that when we were love, falling in love with this sport, it was a much simpler time. There are people out there who will say those those Formula 2 cars from the 70s are ballerina motor cars because you try, you try and uh, manage a, a Brescia Bugatti, which um, you only yeah, need, exactly. need a, a pair of scissors and a stapler and you can make it run. <laughs> you know, it's, um, so yeah, it depends. I I, I I visited Crossway and Gamble down by you, Paul, um, on the in, in the south of England. And Crossway and Gamble are an engineering company that basically build continuations. Crossway and Gar- of, Gardner. Gardner, sorry, what did I say? Gamble? Where did I get that? Aren't they a stockbroker or something, or an insurance Probably company? Sorry, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, Crossway and Gardner, and visited there with Tim Pendergast many years ago. And there they were building an auto union from scratch, <laughs> and and and, a, and also a Mercedes W one two five, which were basically nineteen thirties nineteen thirties Grand Prix cars, and we were told that the engineering concepts on those cars far exceeded some modern day engineering concepts that we have on cars these days on race cars these days. Really, and I just thought you know what. Quite literally, yeah, and it, it, you know, it quite literally is reinventing the wheel, isn't it? Yeah, in, in certain areas. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. Paul, have you uh, come to the end of your list of, of things happening? Um, things happening, yes, yes. I've got a couple of quick items I did quickly just want to mention. Um, to Paul, because we got gloriously sidetracked, but um, Festival of Speed, 11th to the 14th of June, obviously down there at Goodwood, they've announced their theme of horseless to hybrid. So they're going to ideally track the whole lifetime of the motor car back from the very early days all the way through. But uh, then right at the bottom of their press release, they sneaked in that they're also having a couple of other major celebrations. So there's going to be one of Nicky Lauder, one of a subject we've gone to a couple of times, the Shadow Race Team. 
And also, uh, one of my favourite teams, Yurst Racing, because, uh, mm. as I say, multiple Le Mans winners. They, they used to, you know, they, beat, they even managed to beat the Works Porsches back in uh, 85 at Le Mans. So we've got that. And then just one that I finally will finish on, because um, I could go on forever, um, just to throw out there, because I'm, I'm hoping this is going to get a reaction. They've also announced that we have, going up the hill at the Festival of Speed this year, a car from the Indy Autonomous Challenge. This is going to be a completely self-driving car. There will be no mm. one on board it. Mm. It's uh, it's actually a Delara chassis, the Indy Lights chassis. And uh, one of them's touched 192, going for an autonomous land speed record. Don't think it'll be going that quick up the hill, but uh, thoughts, gentlemen. It's a well, I don't like it. You need to go and get a beer. <laughs> There are, yeah. there are Formula One engineers the world over rubbing their hands together going, finally, we can get rid of those little bastards. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, the safety, the, the health and safety brigade will come in and say that, you know, how how far away are we? Hopefully, I'll be dead and gone by. For a yeah, you time. and me both. But, um, you know, that it's going to be deemed too dangerous for a human to actually you know, not exactly under duress, something that they enjoy, but because it's dangerous. And and let's face it, motorsport will never be totally and utterly safe. There, no. there is an element of danger, you know, when you're going at those speeds. There always will be. doesn't matter how safe. And, I mean, Jesus, how safe are the cars these days? They're very safe, but they're not 100%. Um, and, and how long, how far off are we for the health and safety brigade saying, no, no, you know, we're going to ban that. We're going to, I mean, they're already talking about banning heading of the ball, even though the below yeah. ball, footballs these days are like balloons, not like the flipping yeah. cases we played with. Um, rugby, rugby's having a big microscope moment, aren't they? They're being looked at for all sorts yeah. of issues. But like I said, no one's there under duress. Boxing. Nobody forces anybody. All right, circumstances might force someone to step into the ring. We've all heard background stories of many a world championship boxer, and they're all dangerous sports. Nobody forces anyone to climb a mountain. Nobody forces anyone to get on a horse. There's more equestrian accidents every weekend in the summer than there ever is in a motorsport, in, in comparison to motorsport. People falling off, what... like falling off your wardrobe, isn't it? <laughs> well, I've done that. Um, well, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the, wow. other, the other thing that really makes my blood run cold with that, Joe, is that we, we could end up with the cars not being driven by human beings because it's too dangerous, but also that if that car then goes into the crowd, that's too dangerous. So everybody actually watches at home on their laptop. Well, you know what? It's going to be who's going to be the racing drivers of the future. Is it going to be the software engineers who can, you know, who can who can game around the car to, you know, we're already sim racing something I love, nearest thing you'll ever find to real motorsport. You don't have to pack a truck when you're finished. It's marvelous. Um, you know, how far are we away from that? I mean, that is that the future? You know, take away the human element from actually controlling the car, the controller is the software engineer. Well, but why, that, couldn't I mean, it, well, why couldn't it be Max Verstappen sitting at the Red Bull factory in his yeah. little racing seat yeah, with no helmet or anything on because he doesn't need it, yeah, yeah. in the same kind of setup you have at home? Grabbing a slurp of tea on the streets. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And... <laughs> And controlling his Formula One car by remote control from 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 there with the autonomous autonomous driver thing. I well, mean, we're that's, already doing, aren't we? 
Yeah. I we're, wish, we're I wish you hadn't there. said that, Jim. I really wish you hadn't said that because that's ruined my day. But, uh, <laughs> but never mind. Um, okay. Well, thank you for the uh, thank you for the news and the updates. The only bit of news I've got is that you will remember that on the last show we had Don Wales on telling us about the battle that the Campbell family, in association mm. with the Ruskin Museum up in Coniston, was having to uh, to get the what had been the wreck of Bluebird K7, Donald, Donald Campbell's boat, um, to to go into the museum at Coniston. And that that's been a, a bloody battle that has gone on for many, many years. And um, I spoke to Don last week, and it's resolved. I am pleased, I'm delighted to say that Bluebird K7 Donald Campbell's final uh, bluebird, his his boat, will be heading to Coniston and into the museum in the very near future. So uh, that's that's the that's a great bit of news, and uh, and also of course that Don Wales will be joining us at Race Retro, so uh, we can hear it from him at the same time. So uh, thank you, Paul, for that. Um, I think now- we're going to need a dart gun for Mister Tarsi during that conversation. <laughs> I think I think probably we all get issued with dark guns for, for each other. <laughs> Time for more news from the auction block. Two point five million I'm now big. Three million I'm now big. We haven't finished yet, sir. The hammer is still in the air. Twenty-seven million five hundred thousand it is. Your six forty-two sold. Come on, sir, tickle me with another five. For the first time then, ladies and gentlemen, for the second time, for the third, and the last time, build your car, sir. Jim, what's new on the auction front? Well, um, it's it's been quite a first quarter so far, um, and we're only halfway through February. I got to back up a little bit because I want to give you some numbers from 2023 because they'll help put in perspective some of the numbers so far from 2024. Also, uh, in the way of news, R.M. Sotheby's released about two weeks ago, maybe, their full uh, automobile auction, private sales, everything else total. Uh, We'd all been working on it kind of off the auction and that sort of stuff, and their numbers were $811 million dollars for 2023. If you add in the $200 million of Bonhams, the $194 million of Goodings, $100 million from Broad Arrow, $268 million from Barrett-Jackson, and $691 million from Mecham, you're looking at about $2.2 billion in luxury automobile sales in 2023. Uh, I'm sure there's some rounding errors and some other, uh, you know, uh, exchange rate mistakes and, and, you know, things like that. Plus, you've got all those smaller auction houses. We are probably, it would probably be safe to say that we were closer to $2.5 billion in sales in 2023. Let that sink in. Just let that sink in. 
Yes. Um, in fact, if you listen carefully, that's what you can hear is that sinking in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I tell you that because in 2024 so far, uh, we've kind of gotten our socks blown off. The annual beginning of the auction season over here in the States is the Mecham Kissimmee event. Uh, it's one of those kind of annual tent pole events. It's 12 days long. They move 4,300 cars across the block. Now, normally this is a, you know, Mecham has long been the bastion of muscle cars, but this year they had 42 Ferraris at their auction. Two of the Ferraris didn't sell, but they got upwards of $20 million uh, bidding and they didn't meet the reserve. Even though they did finally sell one, it broke Meekham's all-time record for sales of an automobile. $17.8 million was the winning bid for a 1963 Ferrari 250 GT short wheelbase California Spider. The significance was it was the last one ever built. So $17.8 million. Now they had they, they had all of their muscle cars. They had Corvettes, Camaros, Mustangs, Plymouth Hemi Cudas. They sold seven Plymouth Hemi Cudas, and all of them sold for more than $130,000. All told, 178 cars sold for $100,000. Their take for the 12 days of Kissimmee was $275 million. It's the third year in a row they've broken $200 million, but this set, their all-time record for the most ever at a, uh, at a at a public auction. They followed that up. They went to Las Vegas at the end of January for a, a motorcycle auction. Motorcycle auction, $25 million in motorcycles went under the hammer. So in January, Meekham had th- three hundred million dollars in sales that's ridiculous so barrett jackson said hold my beer barrett jackson uh their annual kickoff event is in arizona in fact barrett jackson kind of started arizona car week some almost 30 years ago now their uh, arizona auction is an eight-day event and for the second straight year all cars were no reserve so if you put it in if you put it in the auction you were going to sell it. And they sold 207.6 million dollars over the 8 days. Now 6.7 million of that alone was in memorabilia. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, the top dog for 2024 was a 1965 Mercedes 300 SL Gullwing coupe. Uh, million. So then uh, also as part of Arizona Car Week, you've got Sotheby's, Bonhams, Worldwide Auctioners, all doing Arizona auctions. For Sotheby's, it was their 26th year. Now, these are all one-day sales. So it's, you know, the, the... $207 $207 million is over eight days. Uh, Sotheby's in just one day 
cleared 23 million with a 76% sell through rate. The top seller was a 2020 McLaren Speedtail. They had a lot of movement in uh, Arizona on modern day supercars. There's a lot of movement. Uh, this car was uh, number 69 of 106 cars that were built. These things are nearly bespoke. Uh, it had 54 miles on the odometer and it sold for $2 million, uh, $12,500. Five cars at Susby's topped the million dollar threshold. Uh, 1938 Mercedes Benz 540K. Uh, only one Ferrari. Uh, it was a 250 GT lightweight Berlinetta, a Shelby Cobra, 63 Shelby Cobra, 289, and a 2001, another one of these supercars, Ford GT Mark II. Um, and all but seven cars of the 76% sell-through topped $100,000. Bonhams had an 81% sell rate. Um and it's interesting because, well, I'll, I'll get to this in a minute. Uh, their headliners were two Bugattis. One was a 2022 Bugatti Chiron Supersport 300 Plus. Uh, this is the ultimate in the modern supercar. In 2019, the pre-production model of the 300 Plus broke the mythical barrier of 300 miles an hour for streetcars. The car was named for that famous Monegasque driver, Louis Chiron. And this car has statistics that'll blow you away as a 7.9 liter quad turbocharged, yep, four of them, W16 engine that makes over 1,500 horsepower at 7,000 RPM. There are only 30 of the cars built, and reportedly only eight were imported to the United States. That monster hammered for a $5.17 million. The other Bugatti scene stealer was an older vintage. It was, uh, this car was beautiful. I looked at a lot of pictures of this car. It was a 1936 Type 57 Atalante Sunroof Coupe. Oh, now, it's only really? one of four surviving factory-built roll-top sunroof cars. The original owner was a Marseille jeweler by the name of Charles Olivero. He fancied himself quite the sportsman and used the car in the 1938 Rally de Alp the 1939 Monte Carlo, and the 1939 Rome-Liege Rome rallies. Uh, it was an elegant race car, and it hammered for $1.38 million. Fifteen cars uh, in the top top the $100,000 threshold uh, on their way to reaching, reaching $12 million in sales for Bonhams. Worldwide auctioneers, their first, uh, their first trip to the desert since 2020. They only had uh, they had one entry in the million dollar club. That was a 1961 Mercedes Benz 300 SL Roadster for just over 1.2 million dollars. But 13 cars topped the hundred thousand dollar threshold, and the Indiana auction house realized just under 5.6 million dollars in sales. So that was that was quite a uh, quite an Arizona car week. Sotheby's and Bonhams weren't done though. Paul talked earlier about uh, race retro in Paris or retromobile. I'm sorry. I always flip flop those two names got race retro on the brain. <laughs> um, uh, retromobile in Paris, part of that, that huge car show 
Sotheby's and Bonham's had auctions. A lot more, a lot more race cars there, which which is which is always fun. Uh, Sotheby's realized just under forty million dollars in sales with an eighty-four percent sell-through rate. I hope you, if anybody's writing these numbers down, I'm go, I got a total for you. I'm going to lay on you here in a minute. The top seller hammered for just under eleven million dollars. It was a, a 1960 Ferrari. GTO uh, 250 GT short wheelbase Berlin at a competizione. The car, beautiful yellow car. Uh, this car was a rare alloy body car, and it raced under the NART banner. At the 1960 12 Hours of Sebring, it finished fifth in class. Had a, like I said, a beautiful yellow paint scheme. That's part of the whole NART thing. Also, uh, more more of the modern supercars. Uh, the Bugatti Chiron, another Bugatti Chiron, went for three point one million. The top ten in Paris, uh, one of the significant race cars, that made the top ten was a Porsche nine sixty two. It was the final factory built nine sixty two, raced in nineteen ninety one by Brun Motorsports to tenth overall at Le Mans, and it's that car trimmed in that beautiful fat turbo express livery. It garnered $1.3 million. So that was pretty good, pretty good price for, for the Porsche. Bonhams uh, finished off their Paris weekend with the annual Le Grand Marx Dumont at Paris. Butchered that. And they cleared over $17 million. The top seller was a 2004 Ferrari Enzo for just over $4 million. So, Earlier, I went through the numbers for 2023, and we were at uh, 2.2, just just under 2.3 billion dollars in sales. So, we are halfway through February. We haven't even had the Amelia Island auctions yet, which will have represented, you know, uh, Goodings uh, worldwide. I think is there. Bonhams will be there. The Haggerty folks will be there. Um, I mean, Goodings a year ago topped $100 million there. And already we are at anyone, anyone writing those? Paul, Paul Jurd, were you writing those numbers down? Being a swat. He's, he's asleep. Uh, I was, I'm speechless, frankly. It, it, it's getting to the level of just funny money, isn't it? $598 million in sales. So far, and we haven't even gotten to the end of the first quarter yet. Yeah, we we can so be at a million dollars by 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 time we get to uh, Monterey Car Week. We could already be at a billion dollars before we get to Monterey Car Week. Yeah, and certainly in excess of it afterwards. Um, yeah. Oh yeah, we're we're looking at another. You know, and and this is just. Yeah, Paul said it exactly. It's it's getting to, to to silly money now. And you mentioned that Race Retro has the iconic auctioneers um, event. They've broken it down into um, competition cars and collectors cars. So that's going to be worth some some good stuff. And there's yeah, there's everything yeah, I'm from to seeing that. Yeah. Oh, here's, yeah, here's one other one other note before I finish. Uh, you guys know I'm a sucker for uh, for rally cars. Uh, 1984 Audi Sport Quattro was sold by RM in Arizona 
for $665,000. It broke the old record by more than a hundred grand. And that presumably was a real one. Yeah, it was, uh, it was uh, one of 214 constructed. Yep. 214. That surprises me, but um, yeah. Yeah. The sport quattros. Yep. That's, uh, that's an interesting one. Just amazing. Absolutely. You're listening to the historic Racing News Radio Show. Now, earlier this month, I went to Paris, as I mentioned, for Retromobile. And just so I give you a, a bit of an overview, because it's unlike any event that I've attended anywhere. And I've been now to Retromobile for several and I mean, for a start, it takes part in an exhibition centre called the Port de Versailles, which is in the southwest inner corner of Paris, right next to the Peripherique, which is their sort of inner ring, ring road. So it's it's very urban. Um, and for people who are used to places like the UK's National Exhib- Exhibition Centre, where you have acres of car parks. Port of Versailles hasn't. Um, it's, let's say, very urban. There is an underground car park there, but it's it's not particular. And um, that, but it's, it's, it's well served. You know, there's undergrounds and trams and trains and buses and taxis and all those things. So there are three main halls. I'm going to do them in reverse order. Um, Hall three is for motor clubs and people selling their own cars. Um, Smallest hall by quite a long way. um, And it's packed to the rafters with people selling what we might consider to be everyday classics. It seems that this year was very much about um, the classic Easy Gonis Mini, and there must have been 50 different Minis for sale. And they're just parked in a row, just like a, a, a parking lot. And there are hundreds of cars on sale for that. And that's definitely the, dare I say, the down market. But then you go from there, down a few steps, and you're into the first part of Hall 2, and here you can buy, you know, this is where you can buy your, your Charles Leclerc T-shirt, or almost inevitably there's a an endless string of stalls selling Steve McQueen memorabilia, you know, which is de rigueur for all these, these kind of things, and the French nation do love their film stars. And that, uh, in, in fact, the week after... Retromobile, one of those those halls had a special exhibition all about Johnny Halliday. So uh, that kind of says it all, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I, I am going to the Johnny Halliday exhibition. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> quite sure. Sometime. <laughs> or not. <laughs> um, but the other half of that salon was the Art Coriel auction space which was which was good um the other auctions that you mentioned jim are in other parts of paris um 
So you don't get that sort of rub that you might get in somewhere like Amelia Island, um, where, you know, the, the auctions are all within a couple of miles of each other. You would probably have a, a 40 minute journey just to get across Paris to get to the other ones. But it was still, still entertaining. Lots of drop dead gorgeous cars. Um, you then go across a, an enclosed glass sided bridge to get to hall one and the, that and they do, they do do it well because this, this glass sided bridge had probably 25 examples of cars and bikes that have done the Paris Dakar rally for, for the years, you know, from, from the very earliest ones right up to the, the, uh, the latest Audi, which looks like something out of a futuristic comic, comic from the fifties, but you go through that into hall one. It seems that every major classic and competition car dealer in Europe and or the UK and quite a few from further afield are, are in this brightly lit exhibition hall with spotlights and you know, big white floors on their stands uh, with unbelievably gorgeous cars and they are hugely expensive and if ever there was a case of if you have to ask the price you can't afford it is that there were Ferraris of every shape and size from Formula One cars for sale through two, yes, two 250 GTOs. And Jim, remind me, but the uh, the auction price for the one last year was $36 million, I think. Well, the, the one, the, the GTO that sold in the the one auction in new york the rm Sotheby's one car auction went for 51.7 million okay so i I was standing within dare i say a stone's throw of two of them wow so um and they were both for sale um there were probably almost inevitably more bugattis than you could shake a stick at but the big surprise for me, actually, with the whole of all of it was MG, because we all know that the MG brand is owned by a Chinese company who use the Octagon badge to sell their electric vehicles. And they had what was the biggest stand there in the whole place for MG. And the interesting thing as a, as a marketeer is that Whilst they have their all electric, it's called the Cyberster, which is a dreadful name, but it's their all electric <laughs> sports car, um, which was on the stand. But everything else was heritage. They had the pre and post war record breakers, they had a Brooklyn's racer, they even had an MGB from the 1970s, which was cut front to back um, in half so you could see how it worked um and huge marketing exercise very very low key in that you know they there was nothing that said and you can buy this this electric thing um at all no no leaflets no brochures no photos no nothing so that says something about the the way they see the the heritage that they've 
bought into. And the only downside for me was that times that we've been before, and Paul, you've been with me before, um, mm -hmm. that we've gone on the Thursday and Friday, but because of other commitments this year, it had to be on the Saturday and Sunday. And it was just too busy. It was just, um, and unfortunately on the Saturday and Sunday, you can't move for push chairs and anoraks. And it was just, um, you know, it was just too busy to take a good look at anything. And most of the people that you wanted to talk to had already left by Friday night, but it's a, it's a great event. And yeah, you'll not get there next year without me in your suitcase. <laughs> right, you're on. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. We've already talked. We're talking about exhibitions. Are we all ready for race retro? And uh, Joe, I'm desperately sorry to be uh, to be saying that, knowing that you're not going to be there because. Uh, well, it's 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 not like I'm uh, it's not like I'm doing anything other than live motorsports. So it's some more consolation, I know, isn't it? Yes, it, it is. And, it won't and be the same without you. It it will, however, give us the chance to talk about you. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I was kind of and looking trust forward. me, that will happen. Of course, it will happen. <laughs> I would expect. Hey, if you're not talking about me, then I'm doing something wrong. Um, I'm too boring. That's true. Um, and you're not I, that. I was looking forward to the whole thing. Gentlemen, I was looking forward to this, the social aspect of the get together and stuff, and not just the stage bit, which will be brilliant. I mean, we've always said that our podcast, I hope people perceive us all to be sat around that uh, pub table or any sort of table, really, with a couple of, you know, pints of Guinness on the table and chuntering on about all what we do. Um, and you're actually going to do that for real, which is, uh, I'm very envious of that. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. And, uh, we will uh, we will raise uh, raise a glass to you, Joseph. I, I promise you that. But uh, it'll be good it's... fun. It'll be good fun, which I'm. It will. On, I'm it not... will. Yeah. Um, and we we've, we've just touched on the iconic auctioneer's mammoth sale, and that's always a, a good opportunity just to to wander around and do that. But for many people, the the high spot is. The live rally stage. Um, they've yes, it managed. Is. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to lose Jim. I know we're going to lose Jim. Um, won't see but, him at all for the weekend days when that's running. Yeah. No, no, he'll he'll be up there. I think we're going to have to buy him an RAC rally bobble hat. <laughs> um, but uh, 120 cars they've got out there. Um, Brilliant! Is that what they? Is that how many co co competition cars they've got running in the rally stage? Yes, that's tremendous. It's incredible, and that talking to the guys, you know, about it, and I said, yeah, yeah, but you know, it's a, it's an exhibition, isn't it? And they said, try telling that to the drivers. Yeah, really. <laughs> that uh, you know that those people are out there, and it's everything from. From Mini, uh, Mini Cooper S through Quattro's through um, Ford WRCs, you know, y you name it, it's there. So it's uh, it's a great one to be out there. They're all giving it beans, and they're they're all making it as uh, as I say, technically a display, 
But once that red mist comes down, that's going to be something to see. So do that. There are historic carts that will be there. And I remember I got told that for calling them go-karts last time. So I'll be very yes. careful. Well done. Talk be very careful. Historic carts. Yeah. Um, they will be doing a demonstration each day. So go and have a look at that. Um, Organisers have made use of an additional hall that is now available. So exhibitors and visitors can spread out a bit more. There's a bit more space to sit down and have a cup of tea and a sandwich, but also more exhibitors, more stuff. And Paul, you've always said about the fact that you love the, the sort of the auto jumble end of things. I, I do. I do. And you, you talked about the other hall. In fact, there's quite a bit of a change of it in the fact that for, for long, many years, they always used to have the auction was like across the road and a little bit of a walk, wasn't it? And that's actually going to be in a hall tucked in with the main halls now, which is going to be great. But, yeah, I always love the fact that you can start off in a, in a hall when everyone's got their fancy displays, the HSCC, Equip uh, Classic Racing, VSCC. And then as you wandered down, you ultimately ended up into what well, I don't want to use the word pen because it's wrong, but you used to sort of almost like a barn-like building and there'd be people with just stuff on the floor. And, you know, that's where you could go and buy should you want to, you know, get your headlight for an MGB. Or as I've said before, there was one guy there one year selling parts from a vampire fighter jet from the 1950s. And it wasn't small bits either. It was like fancy a wing, sir. Uh, but yeah, I just love the fact that you you don't really know what you're going to find. You know, there's secondhand book, and I you know I, I could spend my life looking flicking through secondhand books looking for that little gem. Oh, um, yeah, there is just so much there. Yeah. So you're yeah, telling yeah. me I need to bring an extra suitcase? An empty yes, one. You do, yeah. Jim. Yeah, yeah, you really do. Yeah. Uh, and a coat. Yeah, yeah. and a bubble hat. Yeah. <laughs> now, as for the um, the HRN team. Um, We'll bring you a live version of Corridors of Power, the uh, the game show that we play every week, every month. Um, and we're going to be on the live stage at one thirty each of the three days, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Um, and whilst we're talking about Joe Bradley, um, that his place is going to be taken by a man who knows his way around a racing car or two, and that's historic driver par excellence Nick Padmore. And Nick's uh, Nick's going to be joining Jim and Paul on the on the stage with me, trying to keep control and keep order. Uh, that um, Nick's Nick's dashing up on uh, on Thursday night because if I tell you that on Thursday <laughs> he's had a, he's had a call from um, somebody who wants him to test their Williams FW19. <laughs> Oh, to be so, <laughs> we'll see where uh, we sit in his list of priorities, don't we? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. it's uh, it's disappointing, but <laughs> but hey, um, so um, we'll be we'll all be there on stage on Friday. The uh, the subject for our corridors of power will be the best ever rally car. And mm, that's an easy Jim, Paul. Is it? Is it? Bradley, Bradley, you're, you're not going to be there, so you, you can drop yours in right now. Well, I'm a big fan of the Fiat 131 Super Murfiori Sport, which I had a road-going version. Um, the aerodynamics of a brick, uh, mm-hmm. two-litre twin-cam engine, 
it was in the era where it was pitted against the likes of the Mark II Escort. Um, I mean, you know what, guys, when, when that subject first appeared, everybody thinks Group B, don't they? They think the RS-200, they think the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the uh, what's it? The six R four. They think you know, even the Sierra Cosworth. You know, but I've got to go back further. You know, because I was, I come from a rallying area. The northeast of England was a big road rallying area, stage rallying area, and a lot of my mates had, you know, rally cars, Mark One Escorts. Uh, one of them even had an Avenger. Hindoff, John Hindoff had an Avenger uh, that was converted into a rally car. Um, I think if I had to choose my favourite child in the world of rally cars, it's going to have to be the Mark II Escort. Yeah. Harry Vatten and Roger Clark, the yeah. red liveried Cossack car. I mean, you know, everybody, everybody cut their teeth. Any rally driving, rally driving grid back in that day would, would have cut their teeth in either a, a Mark I or a Mark II Escort. Yeah, five no, under, under remit, the, the, the remit is the best, right? Yeah. Yeah, not necessarily the fastest. The re, well, but the remit is the best. Yeah. So yeah, um, yeah, the Audi Quattro your, changed the entire sport. Keep your powder dry, James. <laughs> yes. Powder <laughs> dry. I'll, just, I'll just add that to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, but arguably, yeah. and I hope this comes up, uh, and and – Make a note of this, Tarsi and, and Mr. Jurd. Arguably, four-wheel drive destroyed rallying. There you go. Stop there. Leave it for the stage. Fine. <laughs> that's, that's good. And just uh, just in passing, for uh, for anybody of a certain age who uh, who watched British television in the 80s, if I had a favourite Avenger, it would have to be Joanna Lumley. <laughs> Bloody. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> That was Fine. New so uh, Friday we've got best ever rally car. Um, then Saturday will be my favourite British touring car or British saloon car. So either of those championships through the years. So that can go you mean, a car that's been, you mean a car that's been used in the British touring car championship, Correct. not a British touring car. No, <laughs> I'm being I'm being pedantic. I'm the president of the. Society of British Pedantry, by the sounds of this. Um, <laughs> sorry, Paul. Um, no, I, th I think actually you'll find it's the Society of British Pedantry. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Could I tell you what I would have chosen? Go on then, quickly. The RS500. I Flame think there's going to be a name on, name on that. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, Stealing my thunder here, Joe. Yeah. And, sorry. Uh, I'm not going to be there, guys. So you know, yeah. it's not the it's not it's not the uh, Lissetti. It's, it's just that you've had both of my choices so far. <laughs> and uh, on, really um, so on on Friday, our guest panelist will be Peter Snowden. On Saturday, our guest panelist will be author and journalist Damien Smith. Um, By the way, on did you say some, Paul? Did, did you say Friday for Snowy? Yes. And is that the rally car, dear? Yes. Brilliant. He knows absolutely nothing about rallying. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean nothing. 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 So, uh, oh, so, same as usual, then. 
Um, and, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. No kids there. <laughs> no. no. Wow. So Damien Smith's coming in on Saturday to talk about touring cars. And on Sunday, my favorite motorsport film is going to be reprised. Um, oh, and right, in nice the one. guest's chair for that one, we have Don Wales, record breaker and, uh, and champion of the Campbell family and all that they have, uh, have done over the years. So we've, uh, we've got a, a busy time with that. So please come and see us. It's one thirty each day. Come and say hello before or after. Please don't throw things during. Um, but we'd love Actually, to see about you. About that, Paul, I, I've yeah. got the I've got the the map of the plan of the show. We are right next to a big pink square on the map, which is pie and pint. I'm not name. expecting a quiet audience, shall we say? Ooh. We'll be uh, <laughs> we'll be well looked after. Please do come and come and say hi. We'd we'd love to see you. The... You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. The world was rocked by the news that. Lewis Hamilton, who I am advised is not Duncan Hamilton's grandson, was going to Ferrari for 2025. <laughs> now, that's much too modern for us, but I asked the team just to have a think about other surprise switches to Mar- Maranello over the years and some of the some of the ones that worked and some of the ones that didn't. So, Joe, what, what sort of popped up in your consciousness? Um, regarding what? Sorry, Paul, because you broke up actually there. Sorry, it's uh, you, you mean you fell asleep? That uh, no, no, I actually you, you were intermittent. Okay, um, so champions and, and stars who have been to been lured by Ferrari over the years. Oh, yeah, I was gonna, yes, I, we were talking about this earlier, weren't we? Um, I mean, there's a there's, it's quite a long list, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, so Vettel, do do your first one first. Well, I like the idea of. I mean, I I remember back when you know Villeneuve was killed and Patrick Tombe stepped in, and then later on in that season, Andretti stepped in. But they weren't exactly lured by Ferrari. That was more of a, the circumstances around it um, that brought them to Ferrari, and Ferrari were glad to have them be able to fill in. But I think. You know, we, we've had the likes of Vettel and Alonso that were drivers, multiple world champions, that just had to dip their toe in that red Ferrari, didn't they? And actually feel what it was like to, uh, you know, to, to, to race for that team. Um, so, I, I, you know, for, for me, Vettel, Sebastian Vettel, who had nothing to prove other than can he win a world championship with another car, with another manufacturer, uh, and he just, and he, and he, I think he admitted, as did Alonso, that they just had to fulfil their career, and their careers would have perhaps felt unfulfilled if they hadn't gone to Maranello and and raced for 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 Ferrari. It's uh, it, it's quite a thing, still. Yeah, isn't it? And what what do you think it is that makes I, cold cold hearted, um, driven? self-centered people make <laughs> irrational decisions. I think you've been a bit unfair on uh, Sebastian Vettel and Fernando Alonso. Um, I think <laughs> at, I, at I, the I time, think, I think they probably both fit, fitted that bill. Well, you've got to be of that character to be a selfish single seat, a racing driver, haven't you? 
And no, you know you, you don't have you, to be them. Oh, you have to. The good ones are Jim. I've never met a, I've never met a good racing driver who isn't selfish, even when it comes to where you're going to eat that night. Um, I think it's about the history, isn't it? If you look at if you look at our Facebook page, Paul, and I know we, we're going to try and talk about this later, but on the 30th of January we put a picture up there of Team Origins. And you had the likes of, uh, you know, I forgot that Mercedes started out as Tyrrell and, you know, morphed into Bar and then Honda and then eventually uh, Mercedes. Uh, Stewart Grand Prix through Jaguar into Red Bull. But Ferrari, like McLaren and like Williams, have always been Ferrari. And Ferrari's been there since 1950, remember, since the very first world championship. And I think even those personalities that you describe there so eloquently, I think they understand the history, the heritage, you know, even and before 1988, you know, having that meeting with Mr. Ferrari in that sort of, you know, the ambience and the, the evocative sort of ambience of his office, which has become legendary. And you only have to, you know, go and see that that new the new movie, the Adam Driver movie, where Adam Driver plays Enzo Ferrari. Um, and it, you know, that's a movie about the personalities rather than the cars. Um, and and you know, there's it, it it is. I think it's I think it's because they were there. They've been there from the start, and I think there's so much heritage. They were the first. They were the first team to have their own test track. I mean, has anyone else got their have? Do they? I don't think anyone has their own test track, do they? No, probably not. Porsche doesn't it's allowed anymore, is it? Yeah, yeah. Porsche, Porsche do. does. Um, no, Paul, but I, I'm pretty sure that component testing can be. It goes on there. You you may be not allowed to do any sort of um, mid-season testing, but component parts, yeah, yeah. Um, I would imagine are put on something. You can still run a, a, a three-year-old car around there. Um, and it is just a test track. It's not, you know, that you can test out various aspects of the car. I, I think it's that. I think it's got to be the history, hasn't it? And I know, yeah, you know I Vettel think... knows his history. He owns, his, he owns historic Formula One cars, so he appreciates, you know, the heritage, what he, what he was representing as a current Formula One driver. Yeah, going, going back to your point, Jim, about... Um, whether they are or are not selfish, narrow-minded, that I remember seeing an an interview with Patrick Head years ago, which said, what makes a great Formula One driver? And his first answer was, they're all bastards. Hmm. And I thought, yeah, okay, fine. You know know better (laughs) than I do. Um, he would probably also tell you a great engineer would make a great Formula One driver. He, he's right at the head of the line of this autonomous racing car. Yeah, yeah, we're, I'm, I'm still, still uh, mopping away the sweat from that one. But um, um, Jim, what, what, uh, what I think, who did you I, think of, and, and and why? I think probably because the surprise, I think, was Prost. Um, he'd had such it success. Surprised Nigel Mansell. Hmm? It surprised Nigel Mansell, didn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and um, he, you know, he was well placed at McLaren. 
uh, he was only there two years before he went on to Williams. And, you know, how much of it was because of Senna, how much of it was, you know, there's, there's all kinds of backstories there that we could do probably do a whole podcast on. But I think what I think Prost moved to Ferrari was, was the one that, that surprised me um, the most. When you look through just the, just a list of of people who have uh, have driven for Ferrari. It is it is the virtual who's who of mm. of motorsports. There isn't, you know, Phil Hill, um, Von Trips, John Surtees, Bandini, Richie Ginther, Olivier Jean de Bienne. The Rodriguez brothers, uh, Dan Gurney, uh, uh, Derek Bell. It's, you know, on and on. Peter Collins, Mike Hawthorne, just on and on and on and on. It's, um, yeah, why why wouldn't you want to drive for them? Mm. Yeah, I suppose that's a, that's a better question. I, Paul, I, 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 I was about to say, thought. actually, that why wouldn't you want to drive for them? I think, you know, we've touched on a couple of times now about the psychology of a racing driver. And I think the psychology is, can I win a title in a Ferrari? Because I just looked it up and I was gobsmacked. There's been only nine drivers who have been Formula One world champion for Ferrari. Sometimes they're their own worst enemy, the the, the Ferrari teams. Yeah. I mean, Mm. look at this year. (laughs) I mean, and, and it's, you know, year after year, I mean, people remarked that, one of the reasons that that Lauda was so successful was because he had um, the ability to manage all the politics. And of course, Schumacher, because he convinced, you know, he surrounded himself with John Todd and all these other folks that knew what the heck they were doing. Didn't John Todd go to Ferrari before Schumacher? Wasn't it Todd who brought Schumacher to Ferrari? It, it may. It, oh, I'd have to look that up. I bet they're within a year of each other. Yeah, no, I've, yeah, I have to say that having um, having come back from Retromobile, I, I went to Retromobile with my son Nick, who you all know, um, and who is a great Formula One fan, and and I was talking to him about about Ferrari drivers and things, and that for me, Michael Schumacher is head and shoulders above anybody else, not because of his. His driving, which was brilliant, but we all know flawed but brilliant. But the fact that within six weeks of joining Ferrari, he was walking into the pit box and speaking to all his Ital- all his mechanics in Italian, that he he led that team and he had some. They had John Tott, He had he had Ross Braun. Um, had Rory Byrne. Um, and that they were all there, but but he he led them in a way that I don't think maybe going out on a limb here, but I don't think anybody ever has before discussed. Only only louder. I mean, louder. Yeah, yeah. But, and, and I don't think louder had the control that Schumacher had. No, no, I, I don't. I, I think louder, and I think you can actually probably rewind this back to Ascari again, who we've spoken about before. You know, if he didn't like the gearbox, the car would have a different gearbox at the next race. 
And but those three drivers that we've just mentioned, Ascari, Lauda, and Schumacher, are the only people to win more than one title for Ferrari. I th- I think the Ferrari today is a very very different Ferrari to Nicky Lauda's Ferrari and pre nineteen eighty eight Ferrari. Yes, I think I think Ferrari changed. Um, in, in in a massive way, it was kind of a dictatorship before Enzo Ferrari's death. Of course, he was the dictator. So, Nicky Lauda, you would have to have the ear of the man to be able to make a bad, a bad expression in the circumstance. Oh, uh, yeah, I meant Lauda having the ear of Enzo Ferrari. Um, I know what you said there. Um, <laughs> and it, you know, the, 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 the legend is that. Gilles Villeneuve was the only driver that Enzo Ferrari was found a relationship with that was, you could call a friendship. The others, he was very businesslike. Um, and he absolutely loved Villeneuve for his never say die attitude. And and yes, we can argue perhaps that's really did. Well, that's a podcast for another day, isn't it? Because, you know, would Villeneuve have ever won a world championship? And, you know, you could argue that. <laughs> Mm, he never even he never ever thought championship. He thought he had to be fastest in every single session, and yeah. you can't win championships by being fastest in every session. Um, and that was his demise, wasn't it? Arguably, um, but you know there was there was a romance about Ferrari pre nineteen eighty eight, wasn't there? Brought about by the um, the aura that that team created, and that aura still exists. I'm not saying it doesn't exist now; it just exists in a different way, maybe. You know, and the Schumacher yeah. Ferrari was not, the loud, yeah. was not the louder Ferrari. No. It was still Ferrari, but it was a different, it was a different, I mean, you had John Todd in, in control and he was answering to the corporate entity that Ferrari was at that time in the early 2000s. Yeah, he was answering to Fiat, not to Yes, whereas, yeah. whereas Nicky Lauder would have coffee and breakfast with Mr. Ferrari and say, your gearbox is shit or your chassis is shit. Yeah, um, yeah. We need to change it, and Enzo Ferrari would press a button. Yeah, yeah that's true. Yeah, that's and I looked true. it up. Jean, you were right, Joe. Jean Tot did bring um, Schumacher in. It was his. It was his first move after yes. he got yes. the job in yeah. nineteen ninety three. Yep, and it did. And you know what? Uh, uh, Schumacher went to Ferrari in ninety five. Tell me if I'm wrong, Jim. No, ninety three. Um, ninety three, I think. No, no, he was at Bennett in no. ninety three. Was he? Then he? Then it was yeah. ninety four. Then because no, it, it wasn't was, ninety four either because he was a Benetton champion 94. for Benetton. Yes, um, he went to, and he was Benetton ninety five. It was ninety five. It was ninety five. Yeah, it was ninety five. Oh. Looking. No, at he right. didn't take the he didn't take the number one to Ferrari in ninety five, did he? Yes. Schumacher's first year was ninety six. Ninety six. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you, Google. <laughs> we got there. We got hey. there. Someone had to. The we point dance, is, we dance all the way around the handbags. The point, <laughs> the point is, just so listeners, we're not sat in front of Google. We do uh, it; it's all in our heads. We just had to fish it out of there. Um, and and that, uh, the reason why I, the, the reason why I mentioned this because it was an instant success when Schumacher went to Ferrari. It was all part of the building process that Jean Todd knew what to do. I mean, he did when he was with Peugeot, with the rally team, with the sports car team. It wasn't, he didn't flick, Jean Todd didn't turn up at Ferrari and flick a switch and they became Grand Prix winners. There was a gestation period of pain and growth and development before 
he finally got that championship four years later, four seasons later in 2000. Mind you, it became boring, didn't it? 2000 or one or two or three or four. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yes, it you was, know, it was boring, but yeah, it was we, brilliant we, as well. It, it was, there was an element because even though it was boring, there was an element of, of, um, of chance and jeopardy still in all of those races. So even when we were watching it, it wasn't, it wasn't like 2023's championship, which was utterly boring with regards to who was going to win the race. But there was still a soap opera going on behind the Red Bull in 2023. In the yes. Ferrari years, they were very competitive, but there was also, there was, it was competitive to the point where they didn't win everything. There was a chance that Schumacher wouldn't win. It turned out he did win a lot, and he won he won uh, five championships. But we may see some real soap opera this year at Red Bull. Oh, it's already begun, hasn't it? I'm, mm. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we haven't mentioned that. Um, <laughs> we're not, yeah. no, we no, we're not going to. Either. No, 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 we're not. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So, 1996, when he went to Ferrari, it was massively in the doldrums, wasn't it? It was a midfield team, if not, yes. you know, almost to the rear, and that process of turning that team around was was then a four-year program before they could even think about a championship. And I don't think the 2000 championship came to them very readily. I think they had to fight very hard for that because the McLaren were very much on it in that in those days as well. I, I think you're right. And, and I think that everything you say there is, is spot on, Joe, that you've got... <clears throat> Yeah, you've got the boring aspect, and we've had that last year in 23 um, as well. But there is a bit of me that says it is joyous to see something done perfectly. And those those Schumacher tot um, years were perfect. I think 2023, in many, many ways, was perfect. Uh, it was... It was everything came right, and that you know, I, I get a bit despondent when I see all the stuff on social media of oh, they're going to win again. And no, that's what they're there for. That's the job. The job that, is to win. That, that, that's the game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And so you that, can't yeah, criticise them for that. And they're not going to do their job less well. No, I, I, no. I do. I do understand the point of. Um, it's like. It's like, you know, can you imagine? Well, well, we've had this. In, I'm trying to think of a football analogy where, you know, you've got a football team that's unbeatable. And it's happened in Spain. It happened in Italy. It's it happened a little bit in the English Premiership as well, where, you know, everybody knew who was going to be the champions at the end of the season. And it kind of detracts from the competitive element. I mean, you you watch live sport because of the uncertainty about what you're going to see. And, you know, I'll turn up every Sunday afternoon and watch a Grand Prix, even in 2023, because you just think, you know what? Yeah. Somebody might just beat him here. Or he and, might just beat himself, you know? And, and what do the commentators always say when the underdog wins? Well, that's why they play the games. Or that's why they have the race. Yeah, that's why you or turn that's up. Why they, yeah, that's why you turn up. And 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 there is a school of thought as well, I think, that when you have that dominant, and what comes to mind for me was Richard Petty in the 70s. He was virtually unbeatable. Mm -hmm. And that 
people some people would tune in because they wanted to see him win and some people were tuning in hoping that this would be the day that Bobby Allison would finally beat him and yeah. and when he did it was a great day and everybody celebrated and when he didn't the other half celebrated so it's yeah i i, I think it's all part of the um you know the dominance has always been part of 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 sport and it's been one of the allures i mean take a look at one of the mythical championships of of auto racing is the original can-am well yes yes you know well porsche yes. ruined can-am well Port, you know can-am wasn't anything but mclaren's yes i mean look through the history mclaren won everything and if it wasn't mclaren factory team it was somebody who'd purchased a mclaren who was they, who was they, winning so they, so yeah actually they were actually very boring races weren't they However, no, because they were freaking unbelievable cars. This is what I was about to say, Jim. <laughs> yeah. However, the cars were so fantastically visceral, yeah, that you were blown away by just the, you could have one of those cars just driving around on its own, and you'd be you'd turn up to watch it because yeah. they were freak, freakishly, uh, freakishly visceral cars. You're listening to the historic racing news radio show. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw throw a big rock in the middle of the pond now and uh, and see <laughs> see what re- reaction we get because with the with the current huge following that Formula One has, and I refuse to call it Grand Prix racing, it's Formula One. Um, that with the huge following it gets, you know, when I talk to people. And they find out what I do and, and find out my, my lifelong interest in the sport. People will say to me, who do you support? I know. And I say, yeah. I don't support anybody. I'm, I'll sit down and watch a race and I will be delighted whoever wins if it's a good race. But everybody these days has to be a, a fan of Lewis Hamilton or Lewis Hamilton. <laughs> um, I, I, tell you, I, I tell you something, Paul. When when I, and Jim, you'll back me up on this because it was you who, who uh, opened my eyes to this. I've I've always thought exactly the same, Paul. I mean, if I did have to say who was my favourite Formula One team, I'm going to have to say Ferrari because I fell in love with the sport when Nicky Lauda drove for them in '74, etc. And even though I don't watch Hope and Ferrari would win everything, because that's not what we do. But when when I first went across to the United States to work in the American Le Mans series, um, the likes of Jim and and Chuck Dressing and 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 other people who I met there opened my eyes to this kind of niche fan base of the American motorsport fan couldn't fathom why we Brits liked every form of motorsport and we liked, we enjoyed sports car racing. We enjoyed formula one. We enjoyed IndyCar. We enjoyed NASCAR. We enjoyed it all. And yet in the, and I don't know if it's still the same Jim, but back then a sports car fan would never watch a formula one race or a NASCAR race. A NASCAR fan would never watch a sports car race or a formula one race, a formula one fan would never watch an IndyCar race. And it's something that, and is it still the same, Jim? Do they still have no, those kind of niche fan bases? 
they aren't and, and and in fairness they're 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 less niche than what you what you were portraying them right even okay. even when you were first over here it's it more is you know uh people that like road racing like sports cars formula 1 and maybe some indycar people that like nascar like nascar they 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 didn't they didn't um they didn't follow anything else but NASCAR and, and IndyCar people were kind of like, <laughs> you know, we have the two party political system over here and you had, you know, let's say that the, the, the Republicans were the NASCAR and the Democrats were the road racing people. The IndyCar were the independents because they liked, um, they liked oval racing and they like road racing. So they, they weren't afraid to put their toe in the water of, of mm-hmm. the other two a, a little bit, but, but yes, it was very much a, a a divided, and it isn't as much that now as mm-hmm. as it as it used to be. But there's still there's still some factionism um, to to the fan bases, um, and and we, because you do find where, where you find the most crossover, Joe, in your statement is the sports car fans do like Formula One and and. And, and vice versa. But right. now we've got a whole, whole host of people who are Formula One fans now because of Drive to Survive. Ah, and yes. they know, yeah. and they mm-hmm. know yeah. nothing about any other sport, uh, right. motorsport, but Formula One. Not because they're not interested. They're just, yeah. th- this, is, this is what's turned them on, and they don't. You know, and, and yeah. for for whatever reason, um, this is this is what's caught their interest, and so yeah. that's what they're focused on. Um, the biggest problem with motorsports in America is the diversity of sports that we have. Um, you know, we had uh, what 130 million people watching the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, ridiculous numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'm sitting over here in Curmudgeon's Corner. Um, there is one other thing that I'll uh, I'll mention that's that's happened in the last few years with Formula One. Sorry, sorry. Can um, I just chip in for one second? Sorry, Paul. Just finally yeah. on this Hamilton thing, British mm. Grand Prix 2025. You look at the British Grand Prix for the last few years. I know we've got up and coming British drivers, but you know we've got Lando, George Russell, etc. But that has been a Hamilton audience in their Mercedes kit. Yes. Are they going to stay with Mercedes or are they Hamilton fans who will be, and that will be a sea of red at the British Grand Prix in 2025? Yes. A, a sea of red. Sea of red. Good. Yeah, yeah. 100%. Good point, Paul. I, I, but I think I, I go back to the, back to the Mans in the late 80s that we had a British driver in Derek Bell driving for Porsche who none of the Brits were rooting for because they were all rooting for Jaguar, um, and it'll be interesting to see to see where that goes. My my uh, my curmudgeon's corner is <clears throat> purely and simply: um, why do we keep on having to have shots of people in the grandstands? That there's a there's a motor race going on there, and that the cameras will will pan to somebody in a Red Bull hat with a 10-year-old child um, in a Ferrari hat, and they suddenly realize the camera's on them, and they wave to the camera, and then they cut away from it. But that's um, great. That's, that's great. That's, that's wonderful. So? 
Absolutely. If, yeah. The thing is, if you didn't have those fans and if you didn't show those fans some love with that little bit of acknowledgement of showing the stands, we wouldn't have motorsport. It, there's a reason why uh, commercialism exists in motorsport. It would be we'd be harking back to just a bunch of rich guys like we had in the 30s and 40s who went. I out just don't want to see them. That's I mean, cool. I, 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 I don't we think got a bunch of rich rich guys. But yeah, we look, do need a fan Joe, base. Right? Joe, I I burst your bubble years ago and I explained to you why the bridges were always mm. shown. Well, the, the it's all about the signage, Jim. It's all destroyed, about the signage. Destroyed televised motorsport for me. You did. Destroyed and, and, <laughs> and and the the family in the grandstands, or the beautiful woman in the grandstands, or the handsome man in the grandstands, is there simply to sell the sport as something glamorous or as a family sport where you yeah. can bring the kids, and that okay. is the only reason those shots are there, and they have nothing to do with the race coverage, or I would submit the story of the race, because again, this is another whole podcast thing. Anytime you watch a television show, it should be the story of what you're watching, not just what you're watching. I disagree, Jim. And I'll tell you why, because those fans are part of the story of the event. There's a story of a race the way that a race unfolds, the green light goes, or the light, red lights go off, the checkered flag comes out, that's the story of the race. But this is also a behind-the-scenes story of the event. And the story of the event involves those fans being there. Look at, look at Las Vegas this year, guys. Look at the Formula One race at Las Vegas. What did you guys think of it? I thought it was absolutely fantastic. Phenomenal. To have those Formula One cars going down the strip, the Las Vegas strip, you had that that globe thing, which is a massive a globe. The sphere. TV, the sphere. It's a TV screen. That is phenomenal. That is phenomenal. That whole, that whole glitz. All right, I know there's lot, you know, ticket sales and blah blah blah. But as a spectacle, that the event was televised, not just the race. The race is just a small part of that event, and it was phenomenal. And I think the re- and I think that. Showing the crowd is telling the story of the event. Not all right. We've just gone away from showing, the story of this. Show, showing, showing the crowd is the event. Showing the crowd before and after the event. I agree with you a hundred percent. A cutaway from a pit stop to show some six-year-old asleep on his mom's <laughs> shoulder, or 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 something else like that, or, or kids watching the race and then they look at the big screen and start waving and carrying on does nothing for the story of the event. I think that, I think I I agree with you in principle. What I disagree with is the execution because during, you know, in the buildup and everything else to show the fans, to show the pageantry, to show the, the, um, party atmosphere to show all of that makes it an event. It is, it, it, it's why I sit for 90 minutes before the Indy 500 every year 
hoping that the television people will finally, finally figure out that the most important thing about the buildup to the Indy 500 is what's going on at the racetrack, not what did Michael Andretti have for his breakfast this morning. <laughs> because right, so I'm, I'm glad we've aired that one. That's um, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, you just, I, I don't mind showing the crowd. Just it's the execution of of when and how they do it. Thank you, Jim. I I agree with you, but uh, but forgive me for uh, for airing that one. I've going back to the 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 stars at Ferraris. The one that struck me when we were putting this together was one that didn't happen. And for that, you have to go back to 1951, when a young Sterling Moss was invited oh. to drive a Formula 2 Ferrari at a race at Bari, which is in the southeast of Italy, all the way, a long way down. Sterling travelled to Bari with his father, and don't forget that travel was very different in 1951 from the way it is today. Um, arrived at the racetrack, made his way to the Ferrari pit, climbed into his car, and uh, the mechanic said, uh, what do you do? What are you getting in a car for? You, you've, you've got the gist of the, uh, the accent. Um, <laughs> Moss said, I am Sterling Moss, and I'm racing this car. And the, uh, the mechanic said, no, Piero Taruffi is racing this car, not you. And that... Enzo Ferrari had decided that, uh, in spite of the fact that Moss was on his way from England, that uh, Piero Taruffi would drive the car and that Moss would have a wasted journey. Moss, at that point, decided that he would never, ever drive for Ferrari. And, and he didn't. And he, he drove Rob Walker's 250 short wheelbase cars uh, in the early 60s, mm. But they were no sports cars, and they were they were Rob's cars. Um, and he stuck to his word, never drove for Ferrari. But in 1961, the Ferrari Shark Nose, the 156, was the best car on the grid by miles. And I'm true, Sterling beat them twice, once at Monaco and once at the Nürburgring, which probably says it all, once at Monaco and once at the Nürburgring. But that was on pure skill, and that he was in in Rob's Lotus, eighteen twenty-two. He realised that he had to have a Ferrari for nineteen sixty-two. Um, a very convoluted deal was done, where Ferrari would loan their nineteen sixty-two car, exactly the same as the works cars, to Rob Walker to run for Sterling in the RRC Walker Racing Team, navy blue with the white nose bland. Um, deal was done, and the car was to be handed over in the paddock to Walker's team at Zandvoort for the first race of the season on the 20th of May. However, Moss's near-fatal accident on the 23rd of April, just a month before, changed that forever the irony is that obviously he never got to to drive that never happened deal never happened and nothing ever came of it but the, that 1962 ferrari was 
frankly, a bit of a dog, um, that it didn't work, that the British teams had caught up over the winter and Lotus and BRM particularly were at the top of the tree. Jim Clark and Graham Hill battled for the championship and Ferrari weren't even in the hunt. But we could easily have seen Sterling Moss in a dark blue Ferrari in 1962. So there's a thought to be going on with. Wow. Yeah. What a great story. One of the great might have beens, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to the historic Racing News Radio Show. Right, so let's have a look at Facebook. Can I, as can always. I just interrupt, can I interrupt yeah. you quickly? Sorry. Go on. Uh, in fairness to the folks at Art Curiel, they have put us over $617 million. They cleared almost $20 million in that sale. The top seller was a Gullwing for $1.5 million. So congratulations to Art Curiel as part of Retromobile in Paris, $19,145,000. Puts us over $617 million for uh, the first month and a half of the auction world. And I apologize for missing them earlier. Thank you, Jim. That's hot off the press and uh, and good to know. So thank you for, for that. Um, what has caught your eyes, gentlemen? Let's uh, let's start with uh, with Paul. Um, what's caught your eye on Facebook? It's been a rich vein of catching your eye of late, isn't it? Um, you know, we, we, we've you've been diligently following the, the movement of the Tyrrell Shed from it from its uh, long time <laughs> home down to Goodwood, and you know, we've had pictures of it being taken apart, pictures of it being put back together. But the picture that really caught my eye, and uh, thanks to our good friend Rebecca Leopard for sending this one over, is actually a picture of the intern, the shed in 1970, but inside the shed with the race cars in it. And this is when Tyrrell were actually running the uh, the March 701 cars. And uh, I just love this sort of workshop picture because it's the sheer detail that is going on in there. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a great fan. You know, I've got it in front of me now and I've zoomed right in. And I'm not the only person because uh, Steve Holter in the comments who who weren't a tag top fan. So well done, Steve. He says, I zoomed in. And he's actually discussing the different shapes of the roll bars on the cage, on the cars. But I've, I've zoomed in and I'm just looking at the first car. And it's I said this earlier on. You look at these cars and you can see what every single bit of the car is there for, what every single bit of the car does. And I'm looking at this car and there's there's ring spanners laid on on, on top of the just in front of the cockpit on top of the pedal box. There's what I can only describe as a lump hammer that obviously is, uh, is, is ready to hand to be used. But it, you know, to straighten that out, give it a couple of whacks. And th- th- there's what looks, it's an odd angle, but looks disturbingly like a power saw for uh, cutting metal very quickly. So, you know, there are serious bits of kit going on here. And it's just an absolutely glorious picture of how things used to be done. There's just three cars in shot, they're nose to tail in what isn't a particularly large workshop, but to be honest, isn't, certainly isn't an untidy workshop. It's a workshop that uh, everything's in its place, basically, but absolutely fantastic. And it's great just looking down at, uh, you know, the the comments on this from people who've also been entranced by this picture. Eddie Leslie, you know, quite rightly says that, you know, when when it's rebuilt, these are the sort of pictures that ought to be inside it to remind people of what it uses. It's a strange oh, discussion as well. But, you know, had it, did it have a dirt floor or whatever? I won't go there, but hmm, I'd be surprised. No, but, it yeah. did not. You can see that. There's also it looks like a cat laying on the floor there in front of the uh, of course in front of the compressed <laughs> air tank. 
<laughs> that that was worrying me because I thought it was a dead chicken at first, but now you yeah. point it out, I can see why you can think <laughs> it would be. Yeah. 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 But the mo- a modern Formula One team would look at this and and uh, they they oh, they they'd be apoplectic because they'd be sanitizing yeah. the place. Wouldn't they? Yeah, exactly. They'd have but the place it is such a fantastic insight. You know, there's bodywork hung up on the wall. It is just absolutely glorious. And you can just sit there and stare at that all day, those pictures. Absolutely beautiful. Yeah, and the and the, uh, the Tyrrell Shed, for those who don't know, um, that it was a part of the Tyrrell Brothers' woodyard because they were timber merchants and that Ken had purloined this as, as the centre for his uh, race team, originally in Formula 3, then 2, and then ultimately in Formula One, um, the the area around it was developed as an industrial park. And thank goodness, and I doff my hat to the people who said, "No, we're not going to knock it down." Uh, it stayed there. It's now time that it uh, it was developed more fully, and that a deal was done with Goodwood to transfer it to Goodwood. Um, I was up there um, last week, last Friday. Um, went to went to have a look and see how it is. And um, what, one of our readers actually commented on the fact that if it wasn't for the history of it, you say that's a tatty old shed, <laughs> and it is. You know, yeah. But but there's so much history with it um, that you just you just love everything about it and. Uh, and hats off to Goodwood for doing it. Hats off for them for taking the time. Um, and I, I don't know what the ultimate plan will be for it, but uh, but let's hope they they make a make a fuss of it. And let's hope that either at members meeting or revival, we're going to get Jackie to come along and uh, cut the ribbon because that would be wonderful. That would be strangely appropriate, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. If, yeah. if I can pick up on one more from Facebook that caught my eye, which was the story of um, the ex-David Piper, and I say ex because I, I don't think he's owned it in about 50 years, to be quite honest. Lola T70 for sale, and I love the T70. This is the Mark III B, so probably the ultimate incarnation of the 70, and it's in David Piper's livery, that, that pale green that he liked with Sandman. That was a port, wasn't it? I vaguely remember the advert on TV as a kid. Awesome Wells. Also, of course it was doing the voice. Oh, yes. And uh, yeah, the car is, you know, if, if, if you've got the money, the car is for sale. But I love the Lola T70. It's, you just look at it and it says, I'm a sports car with a big engine. It doesn't say anything <laughs> else. It just, you know, you look at it, it could not be anything else. And, you know, that's exactly the wonderful comments that Rob bon- Robert Bonster, another top fan and a Facebook friend of mine, says, hello, Robert, says, what a fabulous car. I always love the sightness and more importantly, the sound of a T70. And with those big V8s in the back, you know, they sounded absolutely gorgeous. Charles W. Lois says, uh, yeah, the classic bare-chested sports car. And uh, given a bit of context, David Slaven actually says, remembers seeing this car racing at Thruxton in the late 60s, early 70s, with David dominating GT races. Basically, he said, you know, David Piper seems to be trundling around unmolested by the chasing pack, and it sounded wonderful. But really just summing it, summing it up, Gordon James Bushell just says, want, 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 want. And frankly, you <laughs> I'd, I'd have that T70. It, I'm not sure it fit in my di- diminutive garage, but you just you just stare at it and love it and cherish it, wouldn't you? You would, you would. And 
evidently, um, and, and there is, and I, I apologize because I haven't got the name in front of me, but one of our readers said that it was his father who was told by Solar Productions, who were the second owners of the car, um, to, to hang the tail out on the way out of Arnage during the making of the McQueen Le Mans film. It was told to hang the tail out and be dramatic. Uh, He hung the tail out too much and went round. They filmed it, and that that is the piece of film where the green T70 is sideways across the track, which sparks the Ferrari accident into Indianapolis, if you can remember that. The Ferrari fishtails out of... Um, actually fishtailed that out of um, Mulsanne but it uh, the, the Ferrari jumps out of the way and uh, and goes over the sandbank and uh, you know that, that very slow motion thing where the driver's running away from the car um, that's that car so yeah a, a, car, a car with an amazing there. history yeah so we'll, yeah. we'll want to watch out for in our auction feature Yep. Yeah. Well, um, can we can we stay with the Tyrrell theme, gentlemen? Of course. Because we we had that lovely Tyrrell uh, advert advert, didn't we? Where, oh, where that was cool. They were they were selling a Tyrrell 007 for forty grand. Yes. And, and and when you consider, and I think I think I've got this right because I'm just reading the uh, about the Hesketh team, and I'm pretty sure they said a cause with DFV at this time cost about eight k. So eight grand's worth of yes. motor in the back of that, you know, so 32 grand's worth of car. Uh, James Bailey said, 40K for a Formula One car seems like a bargain even at 1975 prices. However, the seatbelts extra, well, that's 2.1 million by today's standards that you need to add to that. <laughs> uh, the, the equivalent today, 40K, is equivalent to 230,000 pounds, by the way, by today's. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that, I mean you know, just under a quarter of a million. But when you think about it, that's a pure racing car. You know, if you look at the picture of the Tyrrell 07, everything from the uh, the cockpits around, that's just a piece of fiberglass. There isn't anything there. Behind the driver, there's a roll bar, an engine strapped to his butt, uh, a fuel tank in between there, a rear wing strapped to the gearbox, and a, an aluminium tub. There isn't, and it's an engine with, you know, it's it's got no hybrid system or anything else that's that you know that's where the cost comes in it's no carbon fiber it's basic nuts and bolts and, and aluminium um joe did you so, did you say it was what it, that would be the equivalent of two hundred and thirty thousand pounds today yeah yeah that car yeah, then is actually worth more than when it was built because i'm sure it was sell <laughs> yeah. for more than that yes, yes it absolutely would be yes it absolutely would be um i, I do love the tyrrell jacket though i mean but there's a that lovely picture from john mcgee of a picture of Ken and uh, Bob, the I think that Bob Sparshot, uh, modelling the T-shirt and jacket. So that jacket that you could buy for under a tenner is the exact same team jacket as the, the Tyrrell team are, wear, are wearing. And the, the T-shirt's 170. And this is, this is perhaps present company considering, <laughs> right? Considering the present company I'm talking about. So the adult's T-shirts only goes up to an L, isn't that a sign of pride, mate? You've got a lot to answer for. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's boys' brigade stuff, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely, that's a that's a that's a, a Ricky Martin tight T-shirt for me. <laughs> <you know. laughs> I thought that was a lovely little step back in time, wasn't it? Just the you know one pound seventy for a tie, fifty-five pence for an embroidered badge, brilliant. And the order form, no, no, uh, log on and uh, and pay by PayPal, yeah. <laughs> but actually cut it out and put it in an envelope with a stamp on it. Yeah, with a check, with the box stick. Yeah. Can, yeah. can anyone remember those days though, where you'd have there'd be like a picture or something you really liked on the other side of the page, and you sit there for ages, yes. agonising over whether you would actually yeah. cut it out. Yeah, absolutely, Paul. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But absolutely. do you do you remember going to? going to race meetings around that sort of time where people would walk around through the through the public areas handing out stickers. Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 You'd get your Yardley BRM sticker or yeah. whatever else it yeah. might be. Marlborough did a great range in the 70s of a Marlborough sticker associated to each and every Grand Prix. Mm-hmm. And you um, collect them you, all. You could get them from shops. You didn't have to go to the racetrack. You could get them from your local garage and, and the local um, supermarket. And they would be everywhere. Could be everywhere, yeah. along with your Marlborough yeah. Challenge entry forms. <laughs> yeah, because there were all sorts of um, ways of getting it, weren't there? You know, buy 40 yeah. fags and you'll, uh, That's right, you'll yeah. get a free sticker or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it's... Uh, that was my favourite. That was my favourite of the of the month. What the the Tyrrell advert? Yeah. No, no, the Tyrrell advert or Facebook poll. That was my right, one of my favourite posts. Yeah. That was on the, that was on our Facebook. And, page. and how's this for a segue? Size does matter, as Joe just pointed out. <laughs> <laughs> Always did, Jim. Always did because I love the. There was a series of. Uh, there were four photographs that really, I thought, told great stories. One was the comparison of the Lola T70 and the and the modern Porsche that Penske used for their two victories at at the 24 Hours of Daytona, which I thought was very telling. The the blue Lola, all just all the gaffer tape and racer tape that was holding it together, and then the Porsche with all the tire bits and rubber and everything else. But in in late January, we posted, uh, I think it was right around the time of the Team Origins thing, which I want to come back to that in a moment because I've got a question for for you guys, all of you. But on on the 30th, Paul, you posted this comparison photo of the McLaren uh, MCL 36 and the MP4 stroke four and the Mm -hmm. steering wheel and the size. And... um, I thought that was absolutely fascinating. I, I did a, some research at Lamar last year for our broadcast about how the, the Porsches had grown, how sports cars have grown from the days of the 917. But the most telling photo of the month, I think, without a doubt, is the actual size of the Alpine, Alpine and a Chevy Suburban. You see, we got in, in this exact country, same size. Yes, but Formula One this, cars are too effing big. That's ridiculous. They are. But a Chevy Suburban in England is called a bungalow. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'll tell you another Which thing. This makes guys. my it's point. It absolutely does, Jim. And it's not just in the real world that these cars are too big. The brand new McLaren and Williams that have been brought out by Scale Electric in one thirty second scale you are too damn them. long. You can't race them. And in comparison to other models that in the Scale Electric range, going back to the seventies and eighties, they are ridiculous. And they, there's certain parts, the certain track configurations that you can't use with these brand new Formula One cars. They are. They're, they're ridiculous. They're, it's like. There must be like steering the Torrey Canyon, trying to figure out where your back end is. I, I think you're exactly right. And it's, to be honest, I find actually, you know, and it's one of my favorite races usually, and, I, and I'm going to use the old name for the corner because, you know, for me, it's always the Lowe's hairpin at Monaco. They are painful watching those cars. Mm. Sort of, They can't even take a curve. They seem to be taking it in a series of, of twitches of the wheel to somehow get the car around there with the lock that they've got. Well, here's, here's a one. Don't so, they adjust it, the lock for that race? Because I know they, they do. Like, they run they different. Long yeah. Beach, they do. Yeah. They have a the different cars, rack. They change the they change the steering rack. Yeah, they have a different uh-huh. rack ratio. Um, so take that picture of the Tyrrell advert and the um, Tyrrell 007 from 1974-75 season, and the Jody Schechter was in the car, and behind Jody Schechter's shoulders is a roll bar and then the Cosworth DFV, and then the gearbox and the rear wing. And look in comparison to where the driver's head will be on that Alpine. Mm-hmm. And then what is all of that behind the driver, between the driver's head and the rear wing? What on earth is that? And have you seen the size of a Formula One engine? You can actually get it in your pocket. It's all tunnels. It's you can all, get it in your all, pocket. It's all aero tunnels and, and crap it's that all, doesn't need to be there. I, I I know the fuel tanks there, and I knew I know the hybrid systems are there, and the and the and the systems that are used to run the systems. You only have to look at any uh, race car engineering magazine and see one of these things unclothed. And it's like it's like what you said, Paul Jurd, earlier about when you look at those cars. Those we were talking about Formula Two cars. When you look at those component parts of those old single seater cars, you knew what bits do. You take the bodywork off that thing. And you're going to need one of their technicians to tell you exactly what those component parts are. Yeah, you're right. And, and yeah, even to the point that you've got the the airbox on a modern Formula One car, whose primary reason is to be advertising space. I, I, actually, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to mute myself and I'm going to go off. And there's a great book that I need to tell all of our listeners about. So just talk amongst yourselves. I'll go and get it. <laughs> 30 seconds. This is well, they, broadcasting uh, quality, isn't it? What, what are the say, other? Go ahead, Paul. Go sorry. No. What are on. the other ones that really I thought that I got a big kick out of was uh, also from late January, and that was Pat Moss, just <laughs> looking quite nonplussed after co-driving in for her husband in the accident. There, uh, that that's just absolutely outstanding stuff. Oh, was that, that the rather mangled Healy, wasn't it? Yeah, he got all four corners of that bad boy. <laughs> she was a great driver, great rally driver. Well, ran in the family, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she and from uh, as you said, married Eric Carlson, who uh, who was one of the greats. So uh, uh, I'm I'm, yeah. I'm glad Joe's back because before he yes. tells us about this book, I have a question. So the the team origins thing from January thirtieth. Where's Lotus? 
I didn't. We did, we just found that, didn't we? And then posted it. Lotus yeah, but I mean, but I mean, there's Lotus. This is the ten current Formula One teams, yeah, and their origins. I thought that Lotus was in there somewhere. Um, you, you've got the fake Lotus that Renault became Lotus. Yes, became Renault yeah, became they're, Alpine, they're, yeah. They're, but I'm talking about the real. I thought that they begot someone else. No. And I may just be wrong, and that's why I wanted to ask you guys because no, uh, the, 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 let's call it the real Lotus, which was yeah. in its in its last iteration, it was Peter Collins running right. the car for Johnny Herbert, and I can't remember. Um, that went bust. That closed. Um, yeah. Oh, just completely they, closed. Okay, I, they yes. weren't purchased. Okay, I had it. I had it in my head that there was. Uh, Sauber, so, somebody had been involved, but I was wrong. So yeah. thank you for clearing yeah. that up. Yes. Um, it's all, this all book, good fun. This, what have you got, Joe? This book I was wanting to tell you about, going back to the size of Formula One cars, that was the sort of, I know we're bouncing around here. It's from our friends at Everall. It's a book by Steve Rendell called Formula One Technology, The Engineering Explained. And it's a it's a lovely book. It's it's very, very, as, a, as all books are from Everall, glossy pages, Lots of pictures, but a lot of explanation. 27 chapters. I'd urge anybody to buy this book. It's called Formula One Technology, The Engineering Explained by Steve Rendell. And it was brought out last year. And I I bought this book um, because I wanted to learn a lot. Because I don't when when a when a, an engine cover comes off um, a race car. And I don't know what I'm looking at. I get really worried. <laughs> I feel really vulnerable. And it's like, <laughs> you know, I, I it's like, what, what yeah. how the hell do I not know what that is? It's not Why stopped do... other people, we know. Yeah, well, yes, yeah, true. <laughs> um, but, but that's not me, you know. And and yeah, I you know, know. it covers it covers everything. It covers the vehicle dynamics, it covers aerodynamics, but more importantly, it covers all of those component parts that are underneath. The, the bodywork on a modern Formula One car. And it's a great, great... Uh, I had to go into my extensive library. That's why it took so long um, and, and fish it out. Um, and it's very readable. That's the main thing. It's it's very readable. You, uh, you All right, a bit of technical background does help when you're talking about things. But he even brings it further forward to the actual layman, I, I think. It's hard for me to judge that because I'm you know, a mechanic by trade and stuff. Um, but it's a very, very readable book, and it'll if you're fascinated about why these cars are so long, that book explains exactly why and how they've evolved into where they are now. And I think even Formula One have, would agree with us that the cars are too long, aren't they? There's no doubt. Uh, too yeah. Long. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, but we can't put the genie back in the bottle. That's the, uh, mm. that's the mm. thing. But um, and, we, and can I do a shameless plug? Please, dear listeners, I think you should go to the Facebook page and you should watch every one of the little videos that Paul posted from Retromobile along with Nick, because there are some fascinating visuals and Mm -hmm. a couple of great interviews. Uh, Well worth your time to look through this stuff. If you have any passing interest in 
in cars. I love the stuff with the Ferrari, that the, the Le Mans yeah. Ferrari, and uh, just all kinds of really, really cool stuff. I kept, I was eagerly awaiting, and uh, and I will repeat, you aren't getting there again without me in your suitcase. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I like how Jim says, I like how Jim says, there's, just a, there's a couple of great interviews. There's a few crap ones, but just a couple <laughs> of great <laughs> ones. <laughs> That's not what he yeah. meant. I'm pretty Same. sure. No, that's not, what I, that's not what I meant. Some people didn't show up. That's why. Well, Some. you know, I uh, I don't know where the time goes, but uh, we, we're it's at the fun. end of the show. Uh, yeah. My thanks go to Paul Jurd, to Joe Bradley, and special thanks to Jim Roller because he also produces the show. Uh, we'll be back on Wednesday, 6th of March. But for now, from all of us, including me, Paul Tarsi, thank you very much. And uh, if you have been, thank you very much indeed for listening. a copyrighted presentation of historic racing news in association with White Squirrel Studios. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or usage without the expressed written permission of historic racing news is strictly prohibited. This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.